to the City Church Podcast. We hope that you will be abundantly blessed by this message. If you would like to find out more about the city, please log on to our website, www.thecity.sg. Hello, good morning. Welcome to our online gathering. My name is Andre. I'm the lead pastor here at the city. I'm privileged to bring you God's word this morning. Uh, to our church family, how are you? I miss you so much. I've been saying that every single week, but it's been nine weeks since we have been able to gather here in this auditorium and I miss you so much. Uh, now, this week has been really eventful for me. I had McDonald's three times. I must admit, I must confess, I had McDonald's three times, different kind of, kinds of meals. Uh, it was very satisfying. I felt very nourished on a soul level and I think many of you can attest the same. Uh, you probably had McDonald's a couple of times this week as well. Uh, but I pray you know, that you're not only nourished uh, by way of your McNuggets, but you're also nourished uh, deep within your soul, your spirit, uh, by the reading of God's word, by times in prayer, that you are, for the most part, feeling your soul coming alive. Even in this time of great trial, uh, you are thriving in God and discovering His presence uh, in a new way, in a new measure, every single day. I hope that you participated in uh, the rule of life this week, that you have incorporated some of these spiritual practices into your schedules. Highly encourage you to participate in our corporate, communal, church-wide Tuesday fast. I think it's going to be really beneficial for you in this time. And I'm also so proud of our teams for coming up with different ways uh, to engage our wider community in this time. Love what Gosh is doing, love our family life ministry for what they're doing in providing care as well as spiritual direction this time. Highly encourage you to check out all the different things that's happening in the church. So proud of our church. Well, we are in week two of our brand new sermon series called People of the Spirit, or the short form, POTS. I like to go by POTS. Uh, people of the Spirit. And the general idea here is for us to work through Galatians chapter 5, where we go through um, the entire list of the fruit of the Spirit. This is a list of nine. And, you know, the, the idea here is for us to discover what it means to be a people of the Spirit, a people who have been so overwhelmed and overtaken by the Spirit of God, a people that is well distinguished from the ways of the world or the works of the flesh. Even this time where we see a whole bunch of different reactions emerging in society as large, how can we, the people of God, stand firm, stand resolute in our faith, in our values, be a people of the Spirit in this time, in this crucible moment, we're not just seeing the good emerge, but we're seeing the bad emerge. Not just in our own soul, but in society at large. And it's, it's, it's in this time where we see a whole bunch of humanistic desires emerging all around us that we are too, like, like it's said in the language of Paul, walk in step with the Spirit. Now in week one, we laid a whole bunch of groundwork. I encourage you to listen to that message. And this is week two, and we will be going through uh, one of the aspects of the fruit of the Spirit today. Let us read uh, Galatians chapter 5, which is the teaching text of this entire series, before we begin in a word of prayer. Let's read God's word together. Starting from verse 16, it says this, So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the acts of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness and orgies and the like. I warn you as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let's pray even before we begin. Father, we thank you for the privilege of coming to you in your presence, of reading your word. And God, we pray, even as we uh, dive into scripture this morning, God, that it will not just be a vain study exercise or 
a moment where we acquire more knowledge, but God, we pray for hearts to, first of all, burn with this uh, great and deep passion for you, for your name, and for your ways. And God, we pray even as our hearts are exposed to your word, to your presence in this moment, God, that you bring a deep work of transformation in our hearts even today. God, we know that this is not something that we can engineer based on our own strength or our own ability or skill set. We need a power that's far beyond our own. We need you, Holy Spirit. So, Spirit of God, we ask that you'll have your way this time. Meet us now. Meet us today. Our hearts are expectant to meet you, O God. Meet us today in our homes, in our rooms, wherever we are at on the planet. God, we trust that you are near, that you are here in our midst. We love you. We thank you for this time. In your name we pray. Amen. Now, as we mentioned last week, you know, notice Paul's use of the word fruit in this text. He uses it in its singular form, which shows that a fruit is not so much nine different kinds of fruits, but it's fruit in its unified whole, and it's not independent characteristics. It isn't like the gifts of the Spirit where we are more apt or more skilled or more inclined in one uh, over the other, the fruit of the Spirit is not something that we kind of like specialize in one or two, right? I'm a gentleness guy. I'm a kindness guy. That forbearance piece, that's not my jam. No, the idea here is for us to embody the fruit of the Spirit, all nine characteristics. It is a unified whole. And as we said last week, the goal here isn't so much a list of nine, but it is Christ-likeness. It is becoming like Jesus. And that's, that is so important. And that's what most of Paul's writings in the New Testament is about. It's about how do we, as a people, become more and more conformed into the image of Christ, to reject the ways of the world and to be conformed into the image, to bear the characteristic traits of our Messiah. And that is what most scripture is about. And that is our goal here as a church, as disciples of Jesus. We want to become like our Messiah, like our Jesus. And it's with that, that as our foundation, that I want to look at one of the aspects of the fruit of the Spirit. The first on that list of nine, it is the fruit of love. It is the fruit of love. Specifically today, I want to talk to you about the subject of agape love in a time of selfishness. Agape love in a time of selfishness. Now, first of all, I don't want to discount much of the selflessness we're seeing in this time, right? We're literally witnessing some of the best moments of humanity. But in this crucible moment, we're seeing some of the best, but also some of the worst, right? As that Charles Dickens line, it goes, it was the best of times and it was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom and it was the age of foolishness. This is our moment. This is our time. This is right now. And we're living in an age of selflessness, but also that of selfishness. We're seeing inspiring, moving acts of selflessness, but also rampant, God-wrenching selfishness in our society. We see this being evident, don't we, with the hoarding, the panic buying, the inconsiderate actions, a lack of care and empathy, self-preservation tendencies, and complete disregard for the well-being of others. And it is in this climate that we are sent, commissioned, and called as the people of God to love well. Because love is directly opposed to selfishness. Now I want to draw your attention to that text that we read in Galatians 5 again, starting from verse 19, it says this, that the acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, and the list goes on. Now much of what is described as the works of the flesh is about us getting what we want, getting what we desire, looking at what we can get out of others or stuff. It is its whole goal, its whole purpose, its whole angle. It is how can I best satisfy myself? How can I best indulge in myself? So really, in essence, the flesh or its works, it's this self-indulgent, self-pleasing, selfish kind of thing. It's unbridled selfishness. It is love that is turned in on oneself. A term that will best describe it is this 
theological Latin term called incubators. Now, this is uh, a really old uh, word, but it's heavily loaded in meaning. It's it, this Latin term called incubators. And it was first used by Augustine of Hippo. Then it was used by Martin Luther in the Protestant Reformation. And this is what the word incubators means. It means a life lived inward for oneself rather than outward for God and others. It is, by definition, love turned inward, collapsing on oneself. It's loving oneself above others. Now, this doesn't sound at all bad or insidious or necessarily evil, right? Because much of this, this whole idea of self-love, self-indulgence, has been normalized in our culture, in our society today. In many ways, our culture promotes and celebrates this kind of self-love and indulgence. Just think about it. We literally, right now, have pages online that are curated, that are devoted to us. We have built shrines for ourselves online to show the world, to show people how awesome we are, how put together we are, how great we are. We are literally building altars dedicated to ourselves online. I know this just sounds so insidious and terrible, right? You all want to just delete your Facebook pages. Please don't, because you can't watch the service. <laughs> now, uh, our culture's self-obsession, right, can be seen in the copious amounts of selfies that we take to even some of the statements that we hear often today. Statements like, I should be able to do what I feel I want to do. Nothing should stop me from doing what I want. Anything that stops me from doing what I want is oppression. And unless I do what I want, I can never be truly happy. You do you, boo, whatever floats your boat. That is the cultural mantra of our day. Luther will go on to further describe this concept of incubators. He says this, Our nature, by the corruption of the first sin, so deeply curved in on itself that it not only bends the best gifts of God towards itself and enjoys them, rather even uses God himself in order to attain these gifts. But it also fails to realize that it so wickedly, curvedly, and viciously seeks all things, even God, for its own sake. Now those are very strong words. And in an essence, what Luther is saying is this, that this kind of self-love, self-indulgence can turn even the most noblest, the most spiritual of pursuits, stuff like pursuing God, loving people, into something of selfish ambition and personal gain. Just think about it, right? The times where you have loved people, you've done something nice for people. You know, consider for a moment how pure your motives were in those moments, right? We all know people who love with a personal agenda, right? It could be to look good in front of others. I've done all this charity work. It could be to appease some kind of annoying sense of guilt, right? Like, hey, I messed up here. Let me make penance. Let me do something nice in order to balance out the scales of karma. Or it can be even to ease one's conscience, right? You see all these things and like, okay, you know, I feel bad. I feel comfortable. Let me just give some money to ease my conscience. It is love with a personal agenda. Now, even though the outward action may appear sacrificial, it is fueled by an obsession with oneself, with one's happiness, with one's reputations, with one's gain and pleasure. It is a false love that is self-serving, self-seeking, a love with strings attached. That is selfish love. That is an indulgent kind of love that we're seeing in our society today. Now at this point, you may be asking me, what about self-love, Andre? Are you telling us to hate ourselves? Isn't that important? Doesn't the Bible tell us to love ourselves? Jesus does tell us to love ourselves. But he says this. This is the entire statement. He says, to love your neighbors as you love yourself. And another way to look at this is, whatever is hateful to yourself, do not do to your neighbor. Now, J.I. Packer, this great theologian, once said that a half-truth masquerading as the whole truth becomes a complete untruth. Let me say it again. A half-truth masquerading as the whole truth becomes an, a complete untruth. 
Now, the heresies of church history are not universally upside-down depictions of Jesus, uh, but simply lopsided ones. I, I, what I mean by that is when we emphasize an aspect of God's word and glance over and ignore the entire counsel of God's word. And that is where we are susceptible to deception, to wayward living. It's when we overemphasize one aspect of Jesus' saying, love yourself, and underemphasize or glance over the rest of the statement, which is to love our neighbor, that we indulge in the flesh and deny the work of the Spirit in our lives. Now, let's read another passage of Scripture together. This is Paul's letter to Timothy. Uh, it's in, found in 2 Timothy chapter 3. Paul says this to Timothy, But mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of good, treacherous, rash, conceited, Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Having a form of godliness but denying its power. And he gives a warning to Timothy. Have nothing to do with such people. Now, first of all, I'd like to say this. That this last days that Paul is referring to in this text, in this pastoral word to Timothy, he talks about these terrible times that are coming, that are soon before them, where all these uh, traits will be present in the people. These last days aren't a distant dystopian future. They are today. We are living in the last day. He isn't talking about a distant future, something for future generations to be concerned about. We are living in the last days. And it does us so much good to be aware of that, to have that in front of our eyes to read the passages of the Bible with that as an understanding. That when the Bible talks about the last days, it's talking about this generation, this moment that we are all living in. And for many of us, you know, when we think of the last days, images that come to mind are like the bowls of judgment, the seven seals, the Antichrist figure, war and disaster. Now, I bet when we think of the end times, Never would we think of it as one of apocalyptic selfishness, which is what uh, Paul is describing in this verse, that people would be lovers of themselves. They would be self-indulgent. They would do things that would only please them, disregarding the well-being of other people. The last days would be marked with unprecedented selfishness. That is the climate of the last days. Matthew chapter 24 tells us that in the last days, the love of many will grow cold. You know, I think, yes, that verse could be in reference to our love for God, our intimate connection with Him. But if we were to read that entire text in Matthew 24 in its context, you know, you could read it and, it, and, and understand it as it being a reference to our kind of love for each other to neighbor love, right? Because it writes in the text that they will betray one another, they will hate one another, they will have blatant disregard for one another, for the sanctity of human life. That is the last days, and the love of many will grow cold. Why? Because as Paul said, in the last days, people will be lovers of themselves. This is our current cultural climate. Isn't it so? We see people preferring themselves, their own opinions, their comforts, their wants, their desires, above the needs of many. And it isn't just that it has come up in this time. It has always been there. It has always been a part of our culture. But pressure put on all around us, put around us, has surfaced much of this selfishness that has laid dormant within the hearts of the human race. It has rise to the surface. Love, as defined in the Bible, is designed to go beyond and out. And when love is primarily turned in on oneself, that selfishness produces the unholy fruit 
of everything that we've just read in that text. Now at its root, selfishness, I'll put it to you, isn't a personality trait or type or a kind of disposition. It is at its root, and I'm strong in saying this, it is satanic in nature. Anton LaVey, the founder of the Church of Satan, wrote this about selfishness. He says this, We don't, the Church of Satan, worship Satan. We worship ourselves using the metaphorical representation of the qualities of Satan. Satan is the name used by Judeo-Christians for that force of individuality and pride within us. Jeff Cook, an author, makes this profound observation about the effects of living for oneself. He says this, The more I make my life, my well-being, my enlightenment and my success primary, the farther I step from reality. Thus the hellbound do not travel downward. They travel inward, cocooning themselves behind a mass of vanity, personal rights, religiosity and defensiveness. Obsession with self is the defining mark of a disintegrating soul. He goes on to say this, that much of the brokenness, rebellion, family breakdown, lack of civility and dysfunction in our world all stem from this truth that people are lovers of themselves. So we see selfishness is not just a trait that is frowned upon, something to be casually brushed aside or a kind of negative quality. It wages war on one's soul. It is satanic in nature, and it's one of the primary temptations that we have to grapple with in the last time. This trifecta of narcissism, of consumerism, and of individualism in our culture is the perfect breeding ground to cultivate incubators, a selfishness that is in contrast to the need we see around us. But as the people of God, we are called to live in stark contrast to the current culture of selfishness by loving in a way that goes beyond ourselves. We subvert the spirit of the age that is of self-preservation, self-interest, and selfishness with agape, a love that is centered around others and overflowing with sacrificial care. If incubators is love turned inward, then agape is love turned outward. That is the kind of love we are called to embody. However, in our day, we have to clarify right off the bat what we mean by love, don't we, right? This word is so romanticized, diluted, watered down, and in some way perverted. Uh, and I, I use a descriptor in my title when I, when I talk about love for a reason, because love... That word love brings up all sorts of ideas and connotations in your head. But I would like to draw us back and take us back to the biblical definition of love today, and that is that of agape. Now, as I said, our culture's definition of love or outlook on love is so wide, so loose, and sadly distorted. Yet, the troublesome thing, it is also the word used to, to describe God and to describe our mission on the earth. So it does us good to come back to a strong biblical definition. I'd like us to consider this satire rewriting of 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Now, this is entirely satire. Let's write to read it to you, and this so captures our culture's understanding of love. It says this, If I post witty memes that make you smile, even if I don't have love, I'm still the most interesting person in your Facebook feed. If I'm smart enough to win every debate in the comment section and do it without love, well, that's as it should be. If I donate a little bit here and there and sometimes volunteer for a good cause, even if without love, I still feel better about myself. Love is instantaneous. Love makes me feel good. It wants the best, claims the best, and quite simply, is the best. Love does for more. It fills the center spotlight. It's quick to stand up for its rights. It keeps score so it, it can know when the game is up. Love embraces even my dark side and never imposes beliefs or rules on me. It always permits, always tolerates, always fluctuates, and always keeps the back door open in case I need a way out. Love never really commits. So where there are covenants, they will cease. Where there are vows, they will be still. Where there is intentional communication, it will pass away. For we know each other in part, and we commit to each other in part. But after a few years of living together, what is in part disappears. In verse 13, it says this, And now these three remain, tolerance, 
self-actualization, and love. And the most exciting of these is love. Now, it's super funny reading that, but yet, at the same time, it so sadly captures our culture's misguided understanding of love. Love, as defined by the scriptures, it is not tolerance. It is not even niceness or desire. The word used to describe the Jesus kind of love in the Gospels is the Greek word agape. Now, this might be a really familiar word to many of us. We know this to be a God kind of love, but it will do us good to realize that this is precisely the kind of love that we are called to display to the world. We are called to live by, to walk in this kind of love, this agape love. And it's not one of tolerance, niceness, or reduced to a kind of feeling. It's agape. Now, agape love is unconcerned with the self and concerned with the greatest good of another. Agape isn't born out of emotions, feelings, or even familiarity or attraction. But agape, by its definition, it is a will. It is an act of one's will. Agape love in the Bible is the love that comes from God. Now, God's love is not sentimental. It is not sappy. It's part of His character, and it is strong. God's love flows from an outpouring of who He is. 1 John chapter 4, verse 8 states that God is love, meaning He is the source of agape love. His love is undeserved, gracious, and sacrificial. And we are to love God and others with that very kind of love, agape love. It is a choice, a deliberate striving for another's highest good and is demonstrated through action. I love this definition of love, or this uh, uh, observation of the word love by the guys who founded the Bible Project. They say this, The word love is one of the sloppiest words in our language, as it primarily refers to a feeling that happens to a person. In the New Testament, love refers to a way of treating people that was defined by Jesus himself, seeking the well-being of others, regardless of their response. Love that definition. A definition that I think would really capture and help you understand this concept of agape is this. Love is the decision and the discipline of the heart to will another's good at the expense of oneself. Now, Jesus gives us further understanding into the kind of love that we are called to in John chapter 13, even as he addresses and speaks to his disciples. He says this in John chapter 13, verse 34. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Let me pass out that verse real quickly. Now, the statement, this this entire text that Jesus makes to his disciples startling to me, it's, it's earth-shaking, it's, it's mind-numbing in, in many sense, uh, for many reasons. The first being this, Jesus in that text doesn't talk about love in the sense of a feeling or a desire. He speaks of it as a choice. And now that goes against the grain of a culture, doesn't it, right? Where love has been largely romanticized and thought of primarily as a kind of feeling that emerges, butterflies in the stomach, if you will. But here Jesus speaks of love as a command. As a command, you are to do it. And it's not loving or just loving your immediate family, your close friends, your spouse, your mate, or people who are like you. Jesus calls them to love each other, to love fellow disciples. Meaning this eclectic, random, wide spectrum of a people called the church you are to love them. Wow. Because truthfully, right, and this, is, this needs to be said, we honestly love people who are like us, don't we? We love people like us. It's so easy to love people who are like us. And perhaps a good reason for that is because we are so in love with ourselves. So it's easy to love people who are like us, right? Why do we get along well? Because we like the same music, right? 
We like the same hobbies. We have the same views and perceptions. And because my music tastes the best, because my food tastes the best, because my hobby is the best, because my view is always right, therefore, you are a person worthy of my love. Doesn't that sound so familiar? And I want to love you because you are exactly like me. And this verse challenges me so much because if we only love who we are like, then how are we different from the rest of the world? What distinguishes us from much of the world today is that we are capable of a love that goes above and beyond preference, common interest. We are capable of a love that is divine because we are possessed by He who is divine love Himself. Now, the second observation of the statement that Jesus made is this. He says this, By this, this call to love, this charge to love, if you do it, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Now, this is a staggering behemoth of a statement, right? It is that line. Jesus ties in that line, right? He ties his witness on the earth. He ties his authenticity authenticity to our ability to love well. All of the messianic prophecies, right? All of the miracles, all of the teachings, you can disregard all of it if the church, my disciples, my people do not love each other well. That is huge. And I wonder, even in this time, as the church, if we can say the same about us, right, as a church, whether as a church we are able to come to a place as believers to say, you can question my message, you can question my programs, you can question my plans, all that I do, if I do not love my fellow brethren, if I do not walk in the way of love. There must be something so distinctive, compelling, and alluring about the Christian community, about the way we love one another that compels, that beckons the world to ask the question, why and how? And we all know the answer to the question is the gospel, is Jesus Christ who lives within us, who has so transformed our hearts such that we may be a people of love. Now, I'm certainly convicted of this, right? Because so often, with my plans, my programs, my initiatives, I can be so busy, so hurried, even with like spiritual activity, all this like very spiritual, very noble stuff, to the point that I'm so overwhelmed that I morph into an unpleasant, a unloving, a mean, and an unkind person. And I do this really often. Right? I get so busy and overwhelmed with stuff, good stuff, that I turn and morph into a person that isn't love. I like to say this, that no amount of activity whether noble or spiritual, is ever a valid excuse for us to turn our love off. We are called to walk in love. Period. The third observation uh, that I'd like to make about Jesus' statement, and we're going to come to a close real soon, stay with me, folks, is this. He says this in that text, right? In John chapter 13, verse 34, he says, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. That word as, it means in the way I have loved, right? So you can read it as in the way I have loved you, how I've demonstrated my love for you, you are to love others. You are to love each other. Christ doesn't frame this call to love remotely as a suggestion or leave the call up to our own interpretation, right? You know, we have this like five love languages, that whole Gary Chapman stuff, and you go like, my love language is quality time. My love language is acts of service. Here's how I like to be loved. Here's how you can love me better. Or here's the way I love. Here's how I want to express my love for you, by doing stuff for you or by spending time with you. But in this text, in our call to love each other as Christ's followers, Christ doesn't leave it up to our interpretation or our preference. He says to love like he loved. Now, that is strong, that is huge, but that just sounds downright impossible. We need the Holy Spirit. So it begs us to ask a couple of questions. 
right, with this call to love. How has Christ loved us? And how can we love as Christ loved us? Pete Gazette wrote the author of the book Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, when he was confronted with these two questions, came up with this model, this concept, this pattern for loving, and he calls it incarnation as our model for love, incarnation as our pattern for loving well. Now, what it means to be a disciple can be best understood around the mystery of the incarnation of Christ coming to earth as a human being and being amongst us. God took on human flesh, the infinite creator and sustainer of all things, limited himself to the confines of history and the human body. It says this in the Bible, that the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. God invaded our planet and forever changed it. God became incarnate. And God knew that it was no, there was no better way to show human beings his love than by being amongst them. Now, there's a story about a four-year-old girl, uh, girl uh, who awoke one night frightened and convinced that, there, that in the darkness around her in her room were all kinds of monsters, all kinds of monsters who lived in a room, just four. And alone, she ran into her parents' bedroom. And her mom calmed her down and said to her, uh, do not worry, you don't have to be afraid. You are not alone in your room. It may be dark, it might be scary, but God is in the room with you, child. God is in the room. He's all around you. And the child replied real snarkily. She said, I know that God is here, but I need someone in this room to be with me who has human skin. God knows, right, we need His skin, right? Not simply the knowledge that He is everywhere, but people today are desperate for skin, to be loved, for someone to incarnate with them, to not just expose vain theories, concepts, and knowledge, or tell them it's going to be better. They want human skin. They want a person to incarnate, to be there with them in the midst of their pain. It's for this reason that people will shout out 100 bucks, 200 bucks, for a therapist to sit with them, to love on them, to be with them in their pain. Today, God still has physical skin and can be seen, touched, heard, and tasted. How? It's through His body. It's through His church in whom He dwells. We are called in the name of Jesus and by the Holy Spirit to be skin for people all around us. To love is to enter into someone else's world, just as Jesus did for us. That is what it means to love. And one of the temptations that we face today, as we are you know, constantly bombarded by you know, the endless barrage of the news cycle, right? we read about various needs, various kinds of suffering and pain that people are going through on the earth, and it's become really normal for us to be confronted by all that news, by all of the suffering, such that people no longer look like people. They just look like numbers. They look like statistics on paper. And it's easy. It's so easy, even more so today than it was any other day, for us to grow calloused in our hearts to human need, to human pain, to suffering. So easy for us to do so in this time, for us to quickly brush it off and go about our day. But the Bible tells us that when Jesus was confronted with pain, with human need, with suffering. He did not disengage by walking away. He did not go in his head, mm, okay, I'll pray for you, or I'll keep you in prayer. He did not do that. Instead, he drew near to them. He incarnated with them. It says that when Jesus drew near, he often would empathize with them such to the point that he would be moved in intense emotions. He'll be weeping, crying, and mourning with them, even in their pain. And scripture tells us that whenever he drew near the need, he was deeply stirred or moved by compassion. And maybe in this time, with all the needs that are around us, God wants to use this moment to form in us the deep fruit that is compassion. My encouragement for you in this time is not disengage or glance past even some of these news articles, but for you to sit be confronted with pain, to draw near, to not disengage, and allow God to do a deep work in your heart to form compassion in you in this time. That discomfort that you feel, that kind of sinking feeling you feel in your heart, 
when someone tells you of the trial, of the suffering, of the tragedy they are going through, that feeling, it is not something you are to suppress or push aside. That is the work of the Spirit in you, forming in you compassion. It's not enough for you to go, Aya, I feel bad. Or Aya, so sad. Or Aya, sayang. And disengage. No. The call of believers, the call of those who want to walk in the way of love, is to engage in that moment where our flesh tells us, this is uncomfortable, I need to disengage. No, the Spirit beckons us to draw in deeper, closer, such that He may produce in us the fruit of compassion. That is love. To be Christian is to love, is to move with compassion. The Bible tells us that whenever Jesus was moved with compassion, He would do something. It would compel Him to a kind of action. Love, Jesus' love, the God kind of love, is always proven by action. So in closing, let's ask a simple question, shall we? How do we love well in this time? How do we love well in a time of selfishness? The time where we are stuck at homes, in, in a time where we have margin, in a time where we're seeing a whole bunch of human need surface in this crucible moment. One of the ways we can do so is through small love, small acts of love. I love this quote by Mother Teresa. She says this, to do small things with great love. And we can begin doing small things with great love every day. Now this goes against our instincts to stir ourselves up to do great and big things. We need to strategize. We need to analyze. We need to plan and structure. We need to do all these things. But often we push ourselves into a kind of paralysis by analysis. But it's as simple in this moment of thinking small, of doing small little acts of love that will benefit, that will make for a life of love in an age of selfishness. Small love in this time could look like a phone call to a friend, to a parent, to a fellow church member. It could look like sowing money. It could look like sending a meal. It could look like being kind, gracious, patient, understanding. It could look like praying for ones who are suffering to perhaps suspend some of the prayers you've been shooting up for your own sake and maybe direct or redivert some of that time into praying for ones who are in need. And that small love can, may even look like staying at home. That is an act of small love, but it does so much good in this time. Now, all this to say, you may never know how small or seemingly insignificant or unspiritual actions can better our world, serve others, and lend to our witness as Christians. You know, the first time I said the sinner's prayer was in uh, the house of my tutor, right? I was having a real emotional day and she reached out. Uh, she said, you know, I, I, I would love to uh, pray for you. And I was, remember I was weeping, I was sobbing on a couch. And she brought me, I will never forget this, a cup of Milo and one of those square little biscuits. I'm not sure what the brand, but she bought me a square biscuit and a cup of Milo. And I drank that Milo and I ate the biscuit. And she said some stuff to me and she prayed with me. And that was the first time I was led uh, through the sinner's prayer. Now, if you ask me today, that was many years ago. That was, I was 10 then, it was almost 20 years ago. If you ask me, Andre, what was the content of that prayer? I couldn't tell you what was in that prayer. If you ask me, Andre, what did she say to you uh, in the moments that led up to you agreeing to say the prayer? I, I, could not, I can't recall even a single word that was uttered in that, uh, in that account. But what I can remember in that time was the cup of Milo and the square biscuit. The truth is, words, knowledge, statements, no matter how fancy my words are right now, they will fade away. They, they may become a distant memory. Some of you might forget it after a week. Some of you might forget it in an hour. But what will remain are acts of love. Acts of love, those seemingly small and significant, they will leave a mark in the lives of people, in the hearts of people. And this is our opportunity to do so, to love well through small love. But it's also, we are also called to love sacrificially, and that is the Jesus kind of love, right? He came uh, to earth, he incarnated, right, as a human being on the earth. He lived on this planet for 30 something years, and then he would give of his life eventually, sacrificially for our sake. In a time of selfishness, God may call us to extravagant acts of selfishness. And what we're going to learn real soon is whether we are generous because we have abundance 
or whether we are generous because Christ's love has so touched our hearts. And the goal of the fruit of the Spirit is to manifest publicly the character of Jesus that is formed in us internally. It's when the Spirit takes our selfishness and forms us by His work and by His word and takes our selfishness and turns it into sacrificial love. So ask yourself in this time, have you been inconvenienced for the sake of love? We've done work on sacrifice before. Sacrifice is always a step beyond what is convenient. And when sacrifice becomes natural, normal, and almost routine, then it no longer, no longer becomes sacrifice, right? It becomes easy, pleasant to do almost. And that's where we need to up the ante in order to live sacrificially. Sacrifice is always a step beyond what is convenient. And it's an important question for us to ask ourselves in this time, even as we endeavor to love sacrificially. How have we been inconvenienced in this time for the sake of love? It's not, the question is not, how have I been inconvenienced? All of us have been inconvenienced in some way, form or shape or degree. We have been inconvenienced. But the question is, how have I been inconvenienced for the sake of love? What discomfort have I on purpose picked up for the sake of loving other people well? It's when we choose to deny ourselves, our needs and desires in favour of others. It's when we are truly walking in sacrificial love. Now, it's in that vein, you know, we have a whole bunch of ways for you to get involved in serving people and loving people well on our website. Uh, it's thecity.sg. Look up the tab, Love Our City. We have a whole bunch of ways for you to give, for you to volunteer and serve. But in closing, I would like to share with you and give you a quick update of a brand new initiative that the church has embarked on in this time, uh, even as we endeavor to be better stewards of our resources and serve the needs of the wider community around us. As we know, our nation, uh, migrant workers are the group that are being the most heavily hit right now. They are the most heavily hit right now. And not only are they all far away from their home, but they're all isolated now, right? They're not allowed to leave their living quarters or dormitories uh, since the 21st of April, as the nation tries to curb the virus outbreak uh, in that particular community. Now, the Ministry of Power, MOM, has mandated that all employers of these workers provide catered meals for their workers. Uh, but, you know, sadly, many of them don't do so uh, for, one of, for one of three reasons. One, uh, it could be just plain negligence or irresponsibility. Uh, two, uh, some might not be aware or do not know how to engage and procure and, and uh, administrate all these catering meals for their employees. And the third is uh, some businesses are going through some serious cash flow problems and they can't afford these meals. And that's where this organization, uh, the Alliance of Guest Workers Outreach, or AGWO, has stepped in uh, since Good Friday, the 10th of April, to meet this need. And I'm proud to announce that as a church, we will be lending our strength and joining in the incredible work of AGWO in serving the migrant community by adopting a dormitory as a church. Now, we're currently as a church paired with a dormitory of 60 migrant workers, primarily from South India. And as of 13 May, we have taken over the provision of three meals, lunch, dinner from a South Indian caterer, and breakfast, which is volunteer purchased and volunteer delivered at this time. Beyond their basic needs and necessities, we also want to start engaging with them as a community and let them know they are cared for, that they are loved, that they are not just a statistic. These are not just 60 people, right? a group of 60. These are 60 individuals with their own names, with their own stories, with their own faces, and they are worthy of love in this time. And so here's the call to action, right? The call is for you to look out for the various ways we are going to engage with this community in love in this time. There will be different activities and volunteer opportunities that will come up uh, on the website again. I want you to start keeping them in prayer. We're going to do so today. We're going to end this time with a time of prayer uh, for these communities, to start keeping them in prayer. And uh, to also look up on the City app where we have a bunch of volunteer, volunteering opportunities that are needed for this time. It could be driving down to deliver uh, food and whatnot. In the coming weeks, I'm uh, also excited to share with you how we as a church will uh, financially be allocate, reallocating some of our resource uh, to better serve the needs of the wider community. 
I'll close off with a final verse that will just wrap up this time. Philippians chapter 2, it says this in God's word. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any common sharing the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of of others in your relationships with one another have the same mindset as Christ Jesus who being in the nature of God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage rather he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man he humbled himself by being obedient to death even death on a cross. See, love is not thinking, it's not not thinking about yourself at all, but it's definitely thinking about yourself a whole lot lesser. Love is not doing stuff to look good or to appease one's guilt or conscience, but it's done out of a genuine Christ-motivated compassion. Love is being gracious in this time, recognizing that this is all affecting us in some way, shape or form. Love is gracious. It's acknowledging that we don't know the full extent of another's suffering and to suspend our often premature judgments. Love is, however, not a kind of pseudo-tolerance. It will at times look like confrontation and advocacy against all that violates love. Love in this time is choosing to buy less so that you can bless more. Love in this time is social distancing. Love in this time is sending someone food without requiring the, requiring the Instagram shout-out. Love in this time is kindness in the time of harshness. Love in this time is generosity in the time of self-preservation. Love is other-centered. It flows from an eternal life with Jesus onto tangible outward expressions. Christ is love and to love is Christ. To be Christ's followers is to follow Him and walk in the way of love. Amen. So let's pray together, even as we close this time. I want to invite you, even as I close this time in prayer and we go back into worship, I invite you during that worship moment, even as David leads us again in song, to gather your family together and spend some time praying for the migrant community at large, but also spend some time praying for uh, praying specifically for the 60 migrant workers that we are privileged to serve. Thank God that we have the resource to serve people in this day. God, we thank you. Let's pray even as we close this time. Father, we thank you for your word that challenges us, that speaks to us, that helps frames our thoughts, our perspectives even in this time. And God, indeed, we thank you that we have the abundance to give. God, we thank you for all the resources that you've entrusted to us. God, we thank you that we get to be faithful stewards in this time to love and serve a community that is often forgotten, glanced aside and, and not regarded. Lord, we thank you that we get to love on them because it's your heart and your desire. God, we acknowledge in this moment that we love because we have been first loved. We have been first loved so well. And it's from that abundance of love it's from being rooted in love, in that infinite love that we get to love others around us. God, we pray that we will be faithful in this time, that we will love well in this age, in this time of selfishness. God, we pray that we will rise up as a church in this moment, be well differentiated and be distinguished from the works of the flesh. God, help us, lead us by your grace. We pray all this in your name. Amen. We'll go back to worship and I encourage you once again, Gather your families, your spouse, your friends. Let's pray for our friends. Be blessed.